we have been over the last couple of uh, uh, months look, been looking at the Bible as, as one big story. Uh, the Bible, oftentimes we look at it and we pick up a passage and we're like, hey, this is an awesome passage. Uh, but we, sometimes we forget to take a step back and, and look at the grand scheme of what's happening. And so uh, we, we, we've been going through the Bible. We looked at Genesis. We saw uh, how God created everything. We saw uh, the fall of man. And, and then we picked out stories along the way that just showed how God interacted with man uh, to bring about redemption. And the last couple of series we've been looking at uh, has been about Jesus, uh, how he fulfilled promises in the Old Testament uh, about his coming as Messiah. Uh, and we've looked at uh, different uh, aspects of that. And, and the last series we looked at uh, was the beginnings of the church. Well, uh, if you're looking at the Bible as a one giant story, uh, it's hard not to forget about the very last uh, book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, and so this series that we're going to go through is uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, it is my least favorite book to preach on. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for this, but first and foremost is uh, because a lot of what's in it is actually very difficult to understand. Uh, and I don't think it's difficult in that we can't. I think it's there's so many different opinions out there about what it's saying, uh, and so many people think they know what's going on, uh, and then they try to work out their system of what they think they figured out, and they come to problems. And pretty much every interpretation I've ever read has a problem here or there. Uh, and so that's why I don't like usually like to read it, uh, and usually don't like to preach on it, but we're going to try, okay? Uh, so when we are trying to uh, interpret this, uh, I want us to make sure that we have some background. Uh, there's some things that we uh, need to do first. And the first thing we need to do is figure out uh, what type of literature this is, all right? Because that determines a lot of things, all right? The Bible spans thousands of years of writing, uh, lots of different authors. And because of that, it naturally has different types of literature, all right? In English, we have different literature, uh, you could pick up a book, and it might be uh, historical fiction. Uh, you could pick up a book, it could be a narrative. Uh, and you can re- when you read it, you read it as a story, uh, and, and maybe it's, it's an, a, a, a historical story that actually took place, and you're reading it knowing that this is true. All right? Sometimes you pick up a book, and it's full of poetry. All right? And do you read that literally? No, you don't read poetry literally. It has a lot of different stuff in it. There's a different styles to it. Uh, you could pick up an allegory, uh, and there's all kinds of books on like that. And you don't read it literally because it's not meant to be read that way. And the same thing with the Bible. When you pick up the Bible, you come across a passage, and you have to determine, should I read this literally or not? All right? And so when you get to a lot of the stories in the Bible, they are written as narratives meant to be read literally. All right? When you read about the flood of Noah, it's meant to be read literally. All right? When you read about uh, the plagues of Egypt and how God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, it's meant to be read literally. Uh, when you read about Jesus and his ministry and his death, burial, and resurrection, it's narrative. It's meant to be read literally. But there's parts of the Bible that are poetry, and it's not meant to be read literally. Some of it can be, but not, a lot of it's not meant to be that way. And when you get to prophecy, you get into a really sticky place because some of it is meant to be read literally, and a lot of it's not. 
So how do we determine which is which? Well, uh, I think the book of Revelation helps us out in this in a couple of different ways. Uh, The first is, uh, the very first verse helps us out, and and it's going to pop up on the screen. It says, uh, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what soon must take place. Uh, He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. All right, so when we look at this, uh, we read in the NIV, uh, and it seems straightforward, but we have to, for a moment, put on our Greek cap. So, uh, if you will, put on your Greek cap. All right, the word that's translated in this passage as known in that second sentence uh, is a word by, uh, that has a very different meaning. All right, it's not uh, known, as in, oh, we're making things revealed to us, uh, but rather it's talking about the way in which things are revealed. All right, so uh, to help us understand this, we have to look at some uh, non-biblical writings that kind of show us this. Uh, Plutarch was a, a Greek uh, that wrote about the Oracle of Delphi. How many of you have ever heard of the Oracle of Delphi? All right, this was a place where you could go and you could ask a question of this lady that was drugged, and she would just speak. All right, and, 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 and he said, Plutarch said the way in which she spoke and revealed things, it, she did it not using plain speech, because she was drugged, she was hallucinating, all right? but she used uh, pictures to reveal truth. She was, so she wasn't concealing it, all right? but she wasn't also saying things directly. All right? uh, another guy, Xenophon, talks about Socrates, right? and Socrates believed, according to Xenophon, that uh, the gods revealed themselves through signs. Okay? And so it was one of those things where you could, by looking around, figure out what the gods were talking about. So that is the same word that John chooses to use in this passage. Right, he's saying these are revelations that Jesus made known, not through direct, plain speech, but through pictures. All right, so when we look at the book of Revelation, we have to think about going into a museum of modern art. Right, if you've ever been to a museum of modern art, you can go and you can look at the pictures, and if you just glance at them, they make no sense, do they? Uh, You have to sit there and stare and stare and stare, and eventually you kind of see the story of what uh, the the artist was trying to get across, if you're lucky. (laughs) Revelation's a little bit easier than that, but that's what we have to kind of imagine, okay? These are pictures that have been given to us that aren't plainly telling us what's happening, but aren't also concealing it, making it a mystery. It's something that we can learn. And so how do we do this? All right, we do this uh, by recognizing uh, that there's symbology. All right? And the symbology that is found throughout the book of Revelation, a lot of it's not new. All right? If you were to read other prophets in the Old Testament, you would see that a lot of the language that is uh, being used uh, in the book of Revelation, is language that they have used before. Right? It's language that, that's not brand new. And if we understand that, we can understand what John is trying to uh, communicate to us. All right? The other thing is, uh, uh, now I forget what the other thing is. All right, we'll just keep going from there. All right? <laughs> oh, sometimes uh, Revelation will tell us Uh, what it's trying to say. So if it is something that's brand new, as we'll see here in a little bit, it says, this is what it means. All right, this, the the lampstands, we'll see in a second. He says, these are the seven churches of Revelation. 
All right? And so that's, it's not something that we have to struggle over because the Bible has already told us what, what it's talking about. All right? So we have to keep that in mind. And uh, if you don't like what I have to say about the book of Revelation, it's okay. And here's why. Because there's as many interpretations as there are interpreters. All right? So if you don't like what I have to say and you're like, I disagree with that, all right, go buy a book. And I'm sure after you've bought 100 books, you will finally find someone to agree with. Uh, and that's just kind of how Revelation is. Uh, and so uh, with that in mind, why is there different interpretations? I think there is different interpretations because we're asking the wrong questions. See, I think a lot of times we come to the book of Revelation and we ask, am I going to suffer? And that's the wrong question. Because the rest of the New Testament says, yes, you're going to suffer. Next question. That's the wrong question we're asking. Another question we like to ask when we come to the book of Revelation is, when is Jesus coming back? Well, Jesus has already given us that answer in Mark 13, 32, and it says that of that day, talking about when he's coming back or our, no one knows. Not the angels in heaven, not the Son. So he's saying, I don't even know when I'm coming back, but only the Father does. And so when we're asking, does Revelation tell us when Jesus is coming back? Jesus has already answered that question and says, don't worry about it. Be ready. I mean, that's, that's all we need to know. And so we're asking the wrong question. We're asking too small of questions. The questions that I think Revelation is trying to answer are bigger questions. Right? Questions like, why is there suffering? Not, am I going to suffer? The answer to that is yes, but why is there suffering in the world? Another one is, what happens when all of this is done? And I think Revelation answers that question. Right? And, and, and another question that we'll see today is, who is Jesus? Right? Not Jesus that we read about in the Gospels, not Jesus that we read about with skin on, but who is Jesus without skin? Right? We don't get to see a lot of that in the Bible. We see Jesus mostly in the Gospels, and we see how he ministered for 33 years, how he, he, he ministered to the afflicted and the weak. But we don't always get to see Jesus from the perspective of eternity. Right? His time on earth wasn't all that he existed. Right? And so Revelation, I think, answers that question. And so with that in mind, let's jump into this. We're going to be in uh, verse 9 starting off. Uh, Revelation is the last book of the Bible, so if you uh, don't have a Bible, there are pew Bibles. You can pull it out and find it really easily. Uh, we want you to follow along in this. And so uh, here is how John writes it in verse, one, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering of the kingdom and patient endurance with those of that, that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. All right, so this serves as our uh, introduction to what's happening. And John says, hey, I was uh, on this island, uh, and I was there because of suffering. All right, and so uh, what John is talking about is, is something that happened later on in his life. Okay, We're, We know that John was banished to this island of Patmos in about A.D. 95. All right, that means that he's probably 90 years old. Okay, He's, a, he's really old, all right, and he's living on this island uh, that was a prison island. Uh, the island of Patmos is only about 13 square miles in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and it was a place where they Romans sent their prisoners because it was not a fun place to be, and that's where John's at. Uh, and so that's uh, kind of is our setting. This is where everything that's going to happen in the rest of this book takes place. Uh, verse 10 says, On the Lord's day, uh, 
I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And so uh, what John's saying is it's on the Lord's Day, which is, anybody? Sunday. The Lord's Day is Sunday. The Sabbath day is Saturday. All right, the Lord's Day is Sunday, so he's there. Uh, he's, pro- he's in the Spirit, so he's probably worshiping. He's uh, probably one of the few Christians, so he's preaching to himself and singing songs to himself, and he's praising God, and he's really into it. And we get to that place sometimes, right, where we're really into uh, the worship that's happening. And as that's happening, someone comes up behind him and speaks to him in a loud voice. Uh, how many of you like to scare family members? You know, like stand around the corner and, and wait for them to come and jump out them and say, woo. I, I, we do it with my kids. They know I'm there, all right, and so they're expecting it, and they run away laughing. But it's sometimes really fun, fun to do this, okay? And, and this is what I kind of picture is he's worshiping God, he's praising God, and all of a sudden Jesus comes up behind him, and he uses a loud voice, and it sounds like a trumpet, and he says, right on a scroll, what you see? Really loudly, okay? So scaring John half to death. All right, and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. All right, and so uh, it's that loud voice. And, and John, uh, he's surprised by it. He turns around, he sees Jesus. And we'll read that here in a second. All right, so the seven churches that, that John is supposed to write to, these ones that are listed, uh, were to uh, place them on a map, uh, you would see that it's in, in the area of what, what's called Asia Minor. Uh, it's in modern-day Turkey. Uh, and if you went from one to the other, it almost goes into a circle. And so someone carrying a letter could take one letter written by John and visit every single one of those churches uh, with this letter. All right, and so John's being asked to write to these people. And the question is, why these seven? All right, why not some other group of seven? All right, why, why this specific group? And I think we have to understand a couple of things about them. First, we must understand uh, the most famous of these seven churches is that of Ephesus. All right, Ephesus uh, was the first one that had a church. Uh, we read in Acts how Paul comes to Ephesus and he establishes this church. Uh, Ephesus would later on have John, who's writing this, come and be a minister there. Uh, they have Timothy as a minister there. Uh, they have the Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's living there. And can you imagine being a preacher in this city? Right, having retired ministers of great renown, having the mother of Jesus there. Can you imagine preaching a story about Jesus and having Mary come up to you and say, well, that's not exactly how that happened. And she gives you a different side of the story, right? All right so it would be very difficult, but from Ephesus, once they were established, we're told that they are the ones that planted these other six churches. So it's the mother city, it's the metropolis city. And these are uh, all in a certain region, and they're probably all facing persecution. In the church, in the first century, uh, the persecution that Christians face oftentimes wasn't a worldwide type of persecution. Uh, Sometimes we read and we're like, man, the whole church was facing it. Well, that's not entirely true. A lot of times the persecution was focused, either within a certain city or within a region. And so these seven churches at this point in history probably are facing very tough persecution as a group because they're all within a certain mile radius of each other. And the persecution that's broke out in one city has swelled into another city. And it's not necessarily the entirety of the Roman Empire, but just this group. And this group is the group that needs encouragement. 
See, when John's writing Revelation, he's writing it for a purpose that meets the need at that time. The book of Revelation isn't necessarily meant for the very last people. It's meant for these churches that need this encouragement and are going to read it and be like, man, I'm happy I'm a Christian. We have to keep that in mind. It has to mean something for them as well as us. And so he's writing to these seven churches, and the first thing that John does is he describes Jesus without skin. And this is how he describes him in verse 12. He said, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool uh, and white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like that of the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. It's a fantastic view, and it's full of symbology. And to understand what John is trying to communicate, we have to understand what he's talking about. And so for a moment, let's just walk through some of this. The first thing that John sees are seven lampstands. Uh, And we're told later on in verse 20 that these represent these seven churches, Ephesus and the others. These are the seven churches. In his hands he has stars, seven stars, and those are the angels to those seven churches. So those are explained in Revelation. Right, but then we go on, and we talk, we're told uh, that he is dressed, he is someone that looks like a son of man. And this is a term that is referencing Jesus. See, throughout the New Testament, when you come across the son of man, that phrase means Jesus. Jesus used it for himself over and over and over again in Matthew. He's the only one in the Gospels that says, I am the son of man. Because in the Old Testament... Son of man is used 107 times, 103 of them is in Ezekiel. And 103 times in Ezekiel, it's God looking at Ezekiel and saying, you are the son of man. And it's a bad thing. It's not something that Ezekiel is proud of. It's God saying, look, I am God and you are not. So that's, that's this understanding of what son of man is. Until you get to Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. And in that chapter, Daniel is looking and he's seeing a vision of the Lord Almighty in heaven. And he says, next to him was one who was like a son of man. And David's reaction to seeing that vision was, huh? I mean, he questioned. He's like, I don't understand this at all. And the rabbis that came along afterwards and tried to explain Daniel, their answer was, we don't know what it means. And without understanding Jesus as that son of man, you do not understand Daniel. So the son of man is this understanding that Jesus was human. And he was given power and and authority over all of earth. And that's what we read in Daniel. It continues, he talks about this robe that is white with a gold sash. And that is the dress of a high priest. 
And John is saying, Jesus is up, is here in front of me, and he's wearing a high priest. He's our high priest before us and God. He continues and talks about his appearance. He had white hair and eyes like fire. The person in the Old Testament that had white hair besides old men was God. Daniel chapter 7 explains God looking like he had white hair. And we see this all-consuming eye seeing all things. And these are pictures of Jesus as God. He is deity. He is holy. We talked about uh, his voice being like that of a rushing water. He speaks and it's there. It is. His feet are the glowing bronze. He tramples his enemies. His right hand, he holds the seven stars, which are the seven spirits of the, of the uh, churches. Uh, his mouth is the double-edged sword, which is judgment. And all these things talking about Jesus are going to be a preface for what he's going to talk to the seven churches about. See, the seven churches are having problems. Each one of them has issues that they're facing. And every time he talks to these seven churches, he points to Jesus. He points back to him and says, you remember this vision over here? You need to remember this. So let's look at those in, in verses, chapters 2 and 3. The first, they can be grouped in couplings. All right. The first ones are Ephesus and Sardis. To the church in Ephesus and Sardis, he talks about him who holds the seven stars and stands among the lampstands. You have a Jesus who is in your midst, and he is holding you in his hands. And the churches in Ephesus and Sardis, they had a problem. Their problem was they had lost their first love. They had forgotten about Jesus. Yes, they were going through the motions. Yes, they were coming to church. Yes, they were uh, giving their money. But they had lost love for Jesus. They had stopped telling people about Jesus. They had become so consumed with other things and thought they were more important than Jesus was. You pick. Money? So consumed with money that that's what they were focused on. So consumed with their work that they forgot about the work of Jesus. So consumed with sports that they're willing to miss coming together as a church because that was sporting events were more important than Jesus. You choose. These people had forgotten what it meant to be on mission for Jesus. And because of that, they stopped telling others about Jesus. And when we forget to go out into the world and to be on mission for Jesus, we become like these churches, dead to our first love. The churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia are the next coupling that are kind of together. These are the only churches that don't have anything bad about them, but they're facing harsh persecution. And Jesus' words to them is, I am the first and the last, the one who has died and is alive again. Philadelphia, it's to him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. And he's saying, I am in control. And they're facing very harsh persecution in these churches, from the Jews especially. And Jesus' encouragement to them is, hold on. I am in control. I know what I'm doing. This is going to be tough. You're going to face this. You're going to have to deal with it. But hold on because I am coming soon. The next group of churches is Pergamum and Thyatira. And he says to the one, I am the one that has the double-edged sword. I am the one who sees all things and whose feet 
trample my enemies. And the encouragement that Jesus is giving them is, I am about to judge you. And the reason is, is because they, they've allowed false doctrine to come into their church. They have two things wrong with them. They, they listen to Balak. Balak is an Old Testament guy that went to the Israelites and taught convince them to turn to idolatry. All right, the other one is Jezebel, and she is another one that convinced them to turn to idolatry. And because they were believing in false doctrine, the churches here are also getting into sexual immorality. And here's why. The pagans in the first century, when they worshipped, it always involved sex. And you would go to the temple of your god of choice, and you would give them an offering, and you would get drunk, and you would go have, a, have sex with a temple prostitute. And so when you f- allowed false doctrine in the early church, it naturally led to sexual immorality. And in our culture, it's reversed. We've allowed sexual immorality to come into the church and has led us to false doctrine because we try to explain away why it's okay for me to do this over here. And that this is not something that is acceptable. When we start to explain why God did not really mean what he said in such and such a passage, we twist our minds and we completely become these two churches. And Jesus says, I have a double-edged sword coming out of my mouth. And I see what you're doing and I trample my enemies. You don't want to be those people. The last church is Laodicea. And to them, Jesus says, I am the faithful and true witness. I am amen, true one. I'm the ruler of all God's creation. He says, I look at you and I see that you are neither hot nor cold. And because you are neither, I'm going to spew you out. Be one or the other. Either be on fire for God or not. Don't be somewhere in the middle, because that is not acceptable. The church in Laodicea, they were a very rich city. It was a, 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 it's a resort town that people all over the world would come to just to go to their hot springs. And they had gone so much into them that they, they were so much better than everybody else that they just kind of lived that way. And they were so rich and they were so materialistic that they didn't even realize it. And I wonder if us, as Americans, aren't this. So rich, so materialistic, that we don't even realize it. And to them, Jesus is saying, I am in control of all creation. The point that John is trying to get across in chapters 1-3 through three is this. There is an almighty God who we see without skin, And no matter what problems you are facing as an individual, as a church, all you have to do is look to Jesus. The sins that you're dealing with, Jesus is in control of them. He can defeat them. Whatever you're facing as a church, Jesus is the answer to that. And if we will just turn back to Jesus as individuals and as a church, we can face whatever we're going to be faced with. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Jesus and his uh, power to be in control of all things. And Lord, uh, we just pray that as we uh, face issues, face persecution, face sin in our lives, that we uh, will be able to just turn to you. 
to turn our eyes upon you as the Hebrew author said, because you are the author and perfecter of faith. You stand before us. You protect us. Father, help us to be people who are not losing our first love, people who are standing firm even in the harshest of persecution, people who are neither hot nor cold but are on for you. I pray, God, that we um, will recognize your power in all things. It's your name we pray. Amen.